politics. Um, here we're looking at it as a nat natural extrapolation from the ethics. He says at the end of the ethics, the next set of questions is concerns political regimes, and this flows directly onto that. Now, like the Nicomachean ethics, Aristotle's politics is actually not written by Aristotle. They seem to be students' lecture notes. But he must have given the most precise lectures you could possibly imagine. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if the Dutch notes have anything to do with that, but I mean, with a mind like Aristotle's was so amazingly encyclopedic and was capable of doing anything with his brain, um, I imagine his lectures were given in uh, appropriate doses at, at, uh, and sequentially. The Nicomachean Ethics is named after his son, Nicomachaeus, trying to teach his son how to be a good human being. All right? The politics is more general. Here he's going to talk about the different kinds of regime and the positive and negative versions of each kind of regime. Now, before we launch into this, you must have noticed that Aristotle's golden mean as a kind of way of getting access to good action and distinguishing good and bad action is a genuine and important contribution. I mean, there are still Aristotelians among us today. Very few, much fewer Platonists, but there still are a fair number of Aristotelians. Um, one thing that has always worried me about Aristotle is that uh, although I can see how finding a happy medium between too much and too little of something of particular quality, that makes sense in affirming that virtue is a mean between two vices. But one of the problems that I have here is that Aristotle's ethics is completely self-centered. In other words, it teaches you how to live a good life. It doesn't include among its virtues, as far as I can tell, things like altruism or self-sacrifice. Right? In other words, he doesn't seem to ever say that just being benevolent to other people for no good reason, that that's a virtuous thing. Whereas most Christians, I think, would hold that altruism is not only possible, but a moral good to do things for other people. Well, Aristotle's Ethics doesn't teach you how to do things for other people. It teaches you how to do things for yourself. Now, hopefully, other people that are depending on you are going to be happy with the results, but it is completely egoistic. Right. And so uh, that's a kind of funny quality here. There's something rather heroic and self centered about Aristotle's ethics. Yes? But what did you say that by learning to take care of yourself? You might. I mean, I think that's the hope. Uh, I think that when someone learns to take care of themselves, there is always the danger that it becomes about them rather than about everybody. All right. So you're right. Uh, if you want to do well for other people, if you want to help other people out, um, living your own life will be certainly an important step in that direction. I'm not sure it'll take you the whole way. There we go. Yes, indeed. In what? Natural slavery. Aristotle believes that some people are naturally slaves. 
because they can't take care of themselves. Now, exactly who it is that can't take care of themselves and how you can tell a natural slave from an unnatural one is not all that clear. It seems that those who have been captured in war are not natural slaves because they could take care of themselves, which seems to be pretty much all the slavery that Aristotle would have encountered. And yet, Aristotle doesn't seem to have a problem with slavery and actually owns slaves himself. So what we get here is, first of all, what has to come with Plato. Both Plato and Aristotle are explicitly inegalitarian. In other words, they don't believe in human equality. Remember Thersites back in the Iliad? He was the guy who said, I'm as good as any of you guys. In Plato's myth of Ur, Thersites is in the afterlife, and he chooses to become an ape, which is Plato's indictment of how bad it is to think that people are equal. All right? So he becomes subhuman. And he's not even a, a bear or a lion or something like the rest of these heroes. He's just a fool. He's less than human. He's Simeon. All right? Plato is as inegalitarian as you can possibly imagine. There's only a tiny fraction of society that, should know, that knows what's going on. They have to be given all the power because they're always going to do what best. That optimism about human nature, the perfectibility of human nature, runs through the Greeks. Remember that if you don't have the Christian idea of original sin, then there's nothing intrinsic to human beings which makes them so bad. That means that we have a new problem. How can we tinker with education, or child rearing, or laws, or property, or whatever, to make people perfect? Because if there's nothing intrinsic to the human condition that makes it imperfect, which is what original sin is, we're, not, we're fallen creatures. But if you don't believe that, then there's nothing preventing you from figuring out how to make people perfect. The temptation to create perfect people is um, a very powerful we long for perfection. The Christians said, look, you know, we do the best we can for fallen creatures. Um, the Greeks said, no, no, no. Um, we're not doing the best we can. We're going to perfect people. We're going to make people as good as they can be. That's Plato's job. Right. Aristotle was the same. He believes some people are natural slaves. What that means is, is that human beings are not equal. Now, you know, Yes, some people are poor examples of our species. And they're the poor creatures. They have to be given myths that will get them to behave as if they knew what was going on. But for the very small number of people that are full, that are fully achieved humanity, well then, give them the right education. Give them gymnastic and muses. And if you don't expose them to any bad things, by the time they're 35 to 50, they'll be perfect. They're never going to do anything bad. That's why there's no checks and balances in Plato's system. So that would just get in the way. Once you have these perfect people with their perfect lives and their perfect souls and their perfect bodies, perfectly being perfect, what do we, we wouldn't want to have anything get in the way of that. All right. So the Greek tradition is heroic, and it pushes the envelope. The problem is, is that so far we haven't had much success in creating perfect. And 
the attempt to create perfect people or create perfect societies, these perfectionistic political programs are always tyrannical and catastrophic. No exception to the rule, yeah. Does Plato believe that um, some people can't reach the higher knowledge because they're not smart enough, right. or does he believe that because they were born that way and that there's no way, that there's some people that are chosen and some people that are not like chosen, but? Um, some people have different abilities. Those with the greatest intellectual abilities are the greatest people. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna give them the education suitable to the greatest people, and they'll become the greatest adults. So most people, it'd be something like the Olympics. Most people don't have the physical ability to compete in the Olympics, only a tiny fraction do, all right? That's the idea. The importance of inegalitarianism among the Greeks can be seen in the fact that they invent the Olympics. Because it's all about, let's see who's the best. Let's have agon, which is conflict, source of our word agony. And then in that conflict, whoever comes out to be the best discus thrower, or javelin thrower, or foot racer, um, this is human excellence personified. Now, if we're going to move from the realm of the physical to the realm of the mental, these are Plato's guardians. And only a tiny fraction of society is as smart as Plato and the other people he wants to be guardians. And they have an obligation to run the government, not in their interest, except in a roundabout way, but rather in the interest of everybody else. All right. So the idea of human equality, which is actually a very important idea in the Western tradition, it does not come from the Greeks. There is no Greek that believes in human equality. There's also no Roman that believes in human equality. Um, the idea of human equality comes from Jerusalem. It comes from the great Western monotheisms, Judaism and Christianity, perhaps even Islam. But the idea is this. For monotheists like us Christians, the differences between human beings some are smaller, some are larger, some are smarter, some are dumber, some are stronger, some are weaker. All those differences shrink to insignificance compared to the awesome majesty of God. In other words, compared to Yahweh, none of our differences matter. If you come in first in the race and he and she comes in second, that Yahweh doesn't care. You're all worthless to God, to Yahweh. So what this means is that the idea of human equality, which is the source of some of the greatest achievements of the West, my view is that the two greatest achievements of the West are uh, the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of women. All right? Both of these are actually egalitarian in nature, and they do not come from the Greeks. They come, actually, from Christianity. The people that actually advocated for the abolition of slavery were not rationalists and scientists and philosophers of the Enlightenment. It was crackpot uh, Protestant sects like the Quakers who thought Yahweh came down and told me I can't own slaves anymore. Now I'm not going to own slaves. I'm not going to let any of you own slaves too. Yahweh's in charge. Now people thought this was crazy, but this sort of moral radicalism is uh, easily connected to the Christian tradition of human equality. Yeah. The 
some of the smart uh, Southerners actually used Aristotle to justify what they were doing. They did. Uh, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on that, so yes, I, I, I'm aware that some of them said uh, that people are natural slaves. Others went to the Bible, because the Bible actually, um, although it allows for human equality in the, in the sight of God, it also allows for slavery, all right, on both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Slaves obey your masters, wives obey your husbands. Paul couldn't be too much more clear. But latent within Christianity is something that's not latent within the Greek tradition. And that's the idea that everybody counts. That's the idea that everybody has human dignity. Right. In other words, for Christians, this world of slavery was tolerable. Well, because later on, God's going to straighten everything out. And you know, if they're good slaves, then they go up to heaven. If they're bad, they go down to hell. Same with the masters. But latent within Christianity is the idea that ultimately no one needs to be a slave. No one is subhuman. Right. And this is one of the greatest legacies of, uh, of Christianity to the West. Without that, there would have been none of the greater. I mean, think about the fact that starting about 1750 or so, a, a strange group of radical Christians in England at the time decided that slavery was bad. And in the one of the largest historical long shots in the history of the world, these people actually came to sufficient power that they abolished slavery first in England, then in their colonies, then all across the entire planet. Now, if you looked at that in the year 1600, you say, what are the chances of us abolishing slavery in a global sense? Pretty soon, um, you would have just been laughed at because the chances of that happening on the basis of induction would have been zero which is in fact what all the Enlightenment philosophers thought. They said, we looked at history, slavery's everywhere, you can't do that, that's impractical. Zero chance of that happening. So the Enlightenment did not generate the abolition of slavery. What generated the abolition of slavery is people who would no doubt today, in today's politics, be described as religious cranks. You know, that just got taken where it lies. Okay, now, Aristotle's politics is where he's going to analyze governments. And since we just went through what analysis is, he's going to find that there are different types of government based upon who has sovereignty, the one, the few, and the many. And this one, few, and many are going to be organized in good ways and in bad ways. So we have six permutations. Best kind of regime is uh, a wise king, a virtuous king, perhaps not quite as grand as Plato's philosopher king, but uh, a lawful king, a virtuous king. They could be a good aristocracy, provided they are morally the best, rather than merely rich. Right. So uh, an aristocracy that will um, embrace an ethic of service, Actually, like something like the elder President Bush, right? He's a, a, a patrician wasp from New England who has his family's immensely wealthy, and he took up a life of service to the people of the country. And you know, I don't see how anybody can object to that. No, it's, he strikes me as an excellent human being. He had, he didn't have to, have to you know, pursue money. He didn't have to pursue connections because his father was senator from. Connecticut, but uh, that's an example of a good aristocracy. The problem is that the old wasp aristocracy in America is largely 
dried up. And uh, we don't have that anymore. And as a result, we have uh, a great deal more vituperation and a great deal less uh, self-control in our political life. All right? um, so aristocracies can be good, provided they seek the public good, not just their own private good at the public expense, which is the danger with an aristocracy. And of course, the many, they can be a good government too. They can be a, a, a proper democracy, provided the people are not allowed to get out of hand, that they don't exceed the, balance, the bounds of moral propriety. And this is done from the background by the one and the few all right, who influence things behind public, behind uh, uh, closed doors. All right? What Thucydides said about Pericles was that he lived in a democratic city, but he was the de facto king of the city. And that's why things went well, because he knew how to persuade people to do what he thought best. So it looks like a democracy, but in fact, it's a, it's a good monarchy. Now, with all these other regimes, with all these three regimes, we have the one, the few, and the many. We have bad result regimes there, too. Democracy easily turns into mob rule. We've been seeing increasing amounts of that in our public life, where uh, the alt-right neo-Nazis square off against the Antifa communists, and uh, they fight it out. Right? This is mob rule. When they close down speakers they don't like, again, that's mob rule. That's really dangerous. It undermines the rule of law. The wrong kind of uh, democracy is an ochlocracy. That's the actual term for mob rule. The, best the worst kind of oligarchy is one that's interested only in the benefits to the few, not to the many. And this conflict between rich and poor is an ongoing problem in every regime. Right? And the way in which you stabilize these regimes is by not allowing the sovereign, whether it's the one, the few, and the many, to go past the, the bounds of the golden mean. In other words, don't impoverish those who are not in power. Don't drive them out of their homes. All right? Treat them justly. The idea is that they'll treat you justly in return, and that it's possible to dampen down those conflicts that naturally arise between rich and poor. And actually, that's really I mean, smart advice. One of the problems that we have in America today is that the elites have largely pulled away. The top 10% in income earners and in education in America and in influence, um, they have largely pulled away from the rest of society. They live in small enclaves that are extremely wealthy, often they're gated communities, and they don't have to deal with the problems in the rest of the world. Um, that generates a tremendous resentment and hostility in those that are locked out. That's what you're seeing. That's the, you know, the Trump voters in the uh, Midwest. Right? They've been locked out of that. A wisely run government, no matter what the Constitution in makes a sovereign, is one that is concerned with the people that are locked out of power. What can we do to help them out? If you stop asking that question, the move in the direction of bad government becomes very quick.
And of course, the worst kind of government is the inversion of a monarchy to a tyranny. All right? That's where the tyrant only pursues his own good. But those are intrinsically unstable. And most tyrants, I mean, there are a few that die peacefully. Most of them, though, end up with their head on a stick. Right? Because they provoke people into breaking down the government because it's tyrannical. So what we want is stability, and stability is achieved by pursuing a notion of the common good. One of the problems in America today is that we have largely lost an idea of the common good. People talk about what's good for my interest group or for my particular identity group. When in fact, if you want to pull society together and lessen the degree of discord, what you want to do is say, look, there are some things that are common goods, good for all of us. Things like, for example, um, avoiding water and air pollution. That's everybody's advantage. It's something everybody should do. Um, there are other things that we should be able to identify. But an idea of the common good is absolutely essential to prevent a society from breaking into factions. Remember what happens with these factions. The canonical story is the story of Corsaira and Thucydides. Words change their ordinary meanings, and eventually all the, the only people can agree upon is that the rich are going to kill the poor and the poor are going to kill the rich. And then they do. Right? So a decent concern for the well-being of those who are not in power is actually the smartest thing you can do if you want to hold on to power. And a decent respect for other people's better uh, well-being, um, one way of achieving that would be the golden mean for a ruler. Right. Don't be too hard on them, don't be too easy. Right. Find a median amount of whatever sort of action is proper and have a sense of proportion, have a sense of limits. One of the things that often gets to ruling groups, whether it's the one, the few, or the many, is that once they realize how powerful they are, they decide there aren't any limits. And what you get there is the million dialogue. Right. So, all right. Aristotle is going to examine constitutions, and they're going to be real and imaginary. Plato's imaginary regime and the republic and the laws get talked about, and Aristotle has a good question to ask about this. He says, look, property is actually a very handy institution because people take care of what belongs to them. And they uh, are concerned with the maintenance and well-being of what belongs to them. On the other hand, what belongs to everybody, nobody thinks about that very much. And it's easy to do harm to what belongs to everybody because you only get a, a portion of the harm. For example, air belongs to everybody, but some polluters get a private advantage from putting carbon dioxide into the air as a result of some industrial process. Okay, well, a properly run government is gonna recognize that there's a common good being undermined there and force polluters to reduce the amount of pollution they put in or they create. That actually makes sense. 
right? So what you want to do then is pursue the public good even at the expense of your private good. Right? So for example, the President of the United States is not supposed to make money on the office. Right? He's not supposed to engage in insider trading and make him, you know, divest himself and stuff like that. Alright? But Plato's question here is a very good one. How are you going to solve that problem of the private good versus the public good? Aristotle says, look, he doesn't think that communism is going to work because if everybody owns everything, no one owns everything. He also thinks the same thing is true with families. People have their own families because that's natural to them, and wanting what's best for the members of your family is also natural. And that's not a bad thing. Plato says, well, look, it actually is often a bad thing. It's a fact that if people are given their own private property, all right, they will be subject to temptation, being offered bribes or being offered advantages. Right? Plato says as long as people have private property, they're always going to be open to the possibility of pursuing their own private good at the expense of the public good. And that means that some, if for non-Platonic regimes, that means that some of your judges are going to be taking bribes. It means that some of your legislators are going to be taking money under the table. Or, even more common, the American elite now, all right, they all have their own families, all right, and having their own families, it's natural for them to prefer their children and the well-being of their children to everybody else's children. It doesn't necessarily mean they want to hurt your children, just it means when there's scarce resources, they want it to go to their children, not to yours. All right? Now Plato, by abolishing the family, has abolished that favoritism towards your own children. But if you don't do that, as Plato's more than willing to point out, well, that means there's always going to be this tension between the public good and the private good, and your, the good of your family and the good of outsiders. And what that means is that you're going to help your child Think about the, something like a, a alumni admission to the 10 or 12 most competitive schools in the country. All right. um, alumni admission increases your chances of being admitted um, by a, a, a multiple, by a number, all right, by a very substantial number. I mean, I was at Princeton, I was at Columbia, I saw it there, but I've seen it everywhere else, too. Um, people with political connections or people with a lot of money make a big donation and they put their child in there, all right, wherever the family's been going for the last six generations. But the point is, what they're doing is locking out that very valuable spot from some kid in Oklahoma that hasn't gotten any connections, but is actually smarter and will be able to do more with that education. How are we going to solve that problem? Well, um, apart from Plato's radical craziness, it's not clear that it is a solvable. Um, Molly Obama did not get into Harvard because she was really smart. <laughs> she was Molly Obama. But they didn't even look at her transcript. It doesn't make any difference. All right. uh, there's a lot of that that goes on. All right. And it's not just in universities. There's lots of things. And getting your first job, getting a door open so you get an interview. Um, if you want to get a job, I mean, one of the real big paying investment banking jobs at Goldman Sachs. Um, it's a real big plus if your dad works in the financial business and can make a phone call for you. Particularly if you're coming out of, I don't know, Yale. All 
right? Um, Bank of America is a, a Yale bank. In other words, all of the top administrators are all from Yale. Right? They don't they don't publicize this, but this goes on all the time. All right. So while Plato's solutions to these problems is radical, I think that it, it's too much. His identification of these as being problems is right on the money. And he says, look, you don't like my, my radical proposals, my waves of discourse in book five? Well, fine. We'll get rid of feminism. We'll get rid of communism. Now how are you going to make your society run, given that you have this split between public and private interests? And I don't know a good answer to that, actually. You shrug your shoulders. We do the best we can. We have laws against it. Look, you can't make a law against having someone donate a million dollars to um, Stanford and then their child getting in. You're not gonna be able to make a law that's gonna effectively stop that. You can't make a law that's gonna effectively stop people from making a phone call, calling someone that calls someone that knows someone. Um, the elite in America is amazingly intertwined. Right? And uh, after a certain point, everybody knows everybody else, or at least knows someone. You'd be surprised how small America really is. So these problems are serious and genuine. Aristotle says, yeah, they're serious problems, but if those that have the power will do their best to follow the golden mean, we can get what's best for everyone. We can achieve the common good. It won't be a common perfection, because Aristotle's not shooting for perfection. Plato says, well, it's just as well you're not shooting for perfection because you're way short of it. And he's right. Right? See, it's easy to tell Plato you think he's wrong, but what he's always sitting there waiting for is that not only if you're going to tell him he's wrong, you also have to tell him what you think is right and why. And then that question is by no means easy. Right? How are you going to keep rich people from banding together with other rich people for the benefit of rich people and leave the other 90% of society hanging in the wind. Well, um, Plato's asking that question and still hasn't gotten an answer. It's an interesting set of issues. So while Plato's answers are often wrong, the questions he asks are often right on the money. And since you're writing a paper and you have to invent your own question, you've probably gotten an idea of how hard asking questions really is. Asking you good questions is a skill that can be learned, and it is by no means easy. I mean, after you got a good question, the answer writes itself. All right. Um, women are naturally subordinate to men. The young are naturally subordinate to the old. The family is the minimal unit of society. We are not going to get to the idea of the atomized individual being the origin of society until we get to enlightenment political theory, the social contract. All right. But for now, human beings exist as molecules, or families. They're going to be atomized, and the molecules will be broken up, and we'll have individual atoms creating society when we get to the enlightenment. But for now, the so society is natural, because people are social animals. There's naturally a connection between male and female. They reproduce. You have a family. The family is the minimal natural unit of society. Put a bunch of families together, you get a uh, community. And from a community, you can get a state or a government, right? A bunch of communities together, or villages, rather. The point is, 
that since human beings are social animals, politics is natural, government is natural, and in the same way that the, the human flourishing or the human good was a fact of nature, there's also a fact of nature about when a society is well run. A society is well run when we give to everyone distributive justice according to what they deserve. Not equal shares, because that would be egalitarian, but that aristocrats are going to get more than slaves. But everybody gets something. Everybody gets their minimal needs met and something more in the case of the favored classes. All right? So we've got the one, the few, and the many. We've got the good versions of those regimes and the bad versions of those regimes. He criticizes Plato and criticizes also examples of real constitutions in the world, from Carthage, from Crete, and from Sparta. That's the kind of thing that Plato would never do. Plato's not interested in any example of anything. All right. Uh, Aristotle says, well, look, examples actually can make things clearer. They can actually explain things. Plato says, oh, don't, look, I don't want to get involved with you about definitions, but believe me, I'm not going with examples. Essences, we have to have that. I don't know. Um, Aristotle says, look, if you can give essences, that's great. But if you can't, we'll have to give some, something that'll make do for now. Remember that uh, Plato's idea of essences, they work particularly well with grand, excellent things, like the form of beauty, or the form of the good, or the form of the true. But when it goes down to more mundane, prosaic, and unheroic things, essence doesn't seem to work very well. For example, you know the Parmenides, right? Where he says, uh, the, is there an essence of hair and mud? What would essential mud be like? How much water would relate to how much earth? Well, I mean, the perfect mud. I mean, capital M, ultimate, essential mud. <laughs> what the hell are we talking about? There's no such thing as, I mean, I don't see any reason to believe that there's such a thing as essential mud. Better still, hair. Now, this hair, this form of hair, this essence of hair, doesn't have any accidental qualities. So it's not going to have any color. It's not going to have any length. It's not going to have any texture. It's not going to have any style. And it's not going to be located on anyone's head. So let's contemplate now. Colorless, lengthless, textureless, hairlessness. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about? What is colorless, lengthless, textureless, hairness? It's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Right? But look, Plato's wedded to it. He says, look, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm grimly going to go through this. Anything you want. Right? Uh, yeah, it's got to be an essence of it. All right. Plato's really kind of stubborn sometimes. But um, in the Parmenides, it's the only dialogue that Socrates actually loses. And Parmenides says, no, I'm sorry, son. This theory of forms isn't going to work. And in fact, Plato abandons the theory of forms in the middle of his career. It's one of the great intellectual achievements of the ancient world, and he abandons it because he figures out it's wrong. Yeah. So, do you agree that it's wrong? Yeah. I mean, look, well, when I teach Plato, I tell you how great it is because I want you to understand the power and the structure of this, the force of this. Um, it doesn't mean that I actually believe that. It just means I'm trying to show you what's good about this before I destroy it next week. <laughs> and I'm going to do that every week, you know, for, we do 56 books in four years or two years. 
right? And every week I'm just gonna we're just gonna march through, and we're gonna think of the Western intellectual tradition as being something like intellectual sumo wrestling, where these gigantic big fat <laughs> brains come out and try to push each other out of the circle, and they do, <laughs> and they just get bigger and more ferocious all the time. I mean. Human big is big, but then Kant comes up with Jughead and pushes him out of the way. And then Hegel pushes him out of the way. And then uh, Mill comes back and says, no, get rid of all this German stuff. Get that out of the way. Um, you got these gigantic brains right, who are engaged in this one-on-one -on -one competition. All right? And, uh, well, I'm not sure that there's any end in other words, it could be there'd be some time when there'd be nothing left to talk about or think about, but I'm not optimistic about that. It seems to be an ongoing process, a kind of conversation that goes on forever. So, so you like Plato a lot, but he's wrong. Yeah. So is there a Greek like philosopher that you do agree with? Like the one that you think is the most right about everything? Um, Plato. <laughs> In other words, um, you see, again, to a great extent, the intellectual life here at AMU requires that you take sides. I mean, you have to like Plato or Aristotle. I actually like them both. But I wasn't, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I actually got to like Aristotle. Um, when I was your age, I used to just throw this across the room. I can't read this because it's just an endless breaking down of holes and parts and then back into the hole. And I mean, this is really dull. I mean, I, I know. He's very brilliant, and he has a genuinely encyclopedic mind, okay? I, it took me a while to appreciate that. Um, and it's actually, when I was teaching the great books at Princeton, um, uh, one of the older professors who was a team to our class, he said, and I said, look, um, I respect Aristotle, but I just find it impossible to be inspired by Aristotle. Just look at this stuff. Is that inspiring? And it doesn't. You know, it doesn't lead me out of this world into some transcendent realm, which is what I'd like philosophy to do, if that's possible. Well, it turns out it's not. Right? But uh, what this elder professor said to me, he said, think of it, Mike. Um, this guy actually has inspired people for centuries. The fact of the matter is that this guy is an almost completely encyclopedic mind. There is nothing, there is no mental activity that he's bad at. Which is actually pretty much saying something. All right. See, when Plato leads, paints himself into a corner and says, damn, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, then he comes up with some myth. Right. And then, you know, then we float off. Right? <laughs> so we don't have to step on the painted floor. But Aristotle says, look, I'm going to do this in a logical way so that I can get out. I don't paint myself into a corner. Right? Aristotle, again, no one ever accused Aristotle of being poetic. Right. So, uh, I like Plato because I think he asks the big questions. Also because I think he's a great poet. I think he's a great artist. Um, I think his answers are mostly wrong. Who do I think's answers are mostly right? I don't think there's one person whose answers are mostly right. I pick and choose from, let me explain to you in a different way. When settlers came to the United States, to the east coast of the US, they went west. Usually what they would do is they would go into a an area that had been taken from the Indians, but now it's depopulated. And they'd set up a homestead, they cut down a bunch of trees, they plant some crops, they build a house. And then, when things had settled down 10, 15 years into this process, often what they would do is sell 
to the next generation of immigrants who had come in, said, look, this has already been cleared, you can go right to work here, we got a house and everything. They would sell that cleared land and they would get more money for it because it was worth more, because it was cleared. But then what they would do was something great. They would set fire to their house because they're just little shacks. And the reason they set fire to their house is so that when the fire burns out, they can go through the ashes and pick up all the nails because they don't burn. And you've got to take those with you to build your next house 100 miles further into the interior. We do that stepwise going across the North American continent. Well, here's the point, okay? What we're looking to do in the history of philosophy is burn them all down and see what doesn't burn. And those nails that don't burn, you can take those and use them on your next project. So that's how I treat the history of philosophy. My lecture on a given topic explains to you why this is great or why this is a breakthrough and why this is really amazing. The next class is the sumo wrestler response to this, which shows why this is completely wrong. All right, But in every case, the stuff I include always leaves some nails. We always get something from it. And that's what the history of philosophy is like. What we'd like to do is someday create a perfectly metal house. There's no such thing. Or at least, if there is such a thing, we're not capable of doing it. But it doesn't mean that we can't make progress and accumulate nails and make ever bigger structures. Just that none of them last forever, because nothing human lasts forever. Right. Okay. Um, Education for Plato was the most important political issue. It's true for Aristotle, too. Everyone who is considering the theory of politics has to deal with education because that's what's going to allow for continuity between generations. You can afford to lose a war or afford to have an economic downturn. If you lose a generation in their education, you're done. Yeah? Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see uh, the political philosophers that will read modernity you're not as interested in education. Well, in what? In education. In education. Um, let's see. Well, I might be tempted, first of all, since that at least in the Enlightenment, we have, for the first time, uh, vernacular literature and uh, widespread uh, literacy. So their education may actually be the writing of the books. Okay. Um, so that's certainly part of it. Um, also, there's the fact that at that time, we get for the first time the chance to mechanically reproduce books, so it means they're much more available to it. So uh, education is going to be important, but more or less depends on, on which person you're reading. Mill, for example, has no theory of, of uh, human nature, and his theory of education is that everybody should be equal, but he really doesn't have a, a well-fleshed-out theory of education. Um, I think that's largely true. I think you're right about that. That probably the education isn't as centrally important to the moderns as it is to the ancients, except insofar as they're actively doing it themselves. All right. Okay. Um, questions about this? I want to talk a little bit now about what we've done this term. What have we done this term besides sweating our way through? What is it? Twelve or thirteen books? How many we read? 14. 14 is a good number. Yeah. Yeah. Did you want me to present the politics? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. You got to talk and stop me before I 
Kill again. <laughs>
I can see how it could lead to people um, just kind of settling for something that's not good enough. Um, but I, I enjoyed reading it in a way, um, but not all of it. Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great is about to create an enormous empire and annihilate all the politics of Greece. So, yeah? It's a really strange line in the politics where it just says that if the Greeks were to unite, they could rule the whole world. Yeah, they probably could. But uh, Aristotle, Aristotle taught Alexander, but you wonder how much. Alexander used to keep by his bedside a copy of the Iliad. Okay. So, uh, Aristotle is writing at the end of an era. Right? He is batting cleanup. He is discussing the world of the polis as if it were all that politics is. And it turns out that's not the case. Right? We're going to have empires, we're going to have nations. We're going to have states that are much bigger and much more complicated than the polis. In the polis, if you have maybe 50,000 people in it, maybe between five and 10,000 are actually going to be citizens. And you pretty much know everybody. If you don't know them directly, you know their family. All right? So this is a much more personal kind of political order. Uh, as societies get bigger, it becomes less and less possible. All right? So, for example, uh, Aristotle's idea of a mixed polity is a great because what he says is we can choose elements from the one, the few, and the many, give them different positions within the government, and that way preventing any one side from overwhelming the other. Again, that's that contributes to stability. All right, gives each element of society, the one, the few, and the many, some say and some influence, but not complete influence, which is actually. Um, advantageous in stabilizing the political order. Right. One thing you should keep in mind as far as politics goes, you want to win in political conflict, but you don't want to annihilate your opponent. The reason why is that if you utterly defeat your opponent, you're going to leave them with nothing to lose, and the most dangerous opponent you're going to have is somebody that has nothing. So it is wise not to, to drive your opposition to despair. In other words, know when to ease up. And that actually is, involves phrenesis. So America is a kind of mixed up. We have a one, a few, and a many. Right. And same sort of thing occurs with uh, the English Constitution. They had a one, the few, and the many. The one was the king, the few was the House of Lords, and the many was the House of Commons. Right. Later on, in the, as the political theory of the Enlightenment develops, they're going to get rid of all that Aristotelian stuff 
the disagreement among the few and the many, and there's just going to be the many. And that's what leads to the English tradition of bicameral legislatures and the French tradition of unicameral legislatures, because they've killed off the king and the aristocrats. Sometime when I have a little free time, I'll explain to you how that generates all the systems of political parties in the world currently. Just that distinction. It actually sounds like a small distinction, it's not. It turns out to be huge. But I don't have the time to embark on that now. Sometimes, if you just get me at the end of a short lecture, you know, maybe I'll just go up and I'll show you how that works. But a long time ago, I figured out how the political party systems work. I never wrote it up, but if you want, we can. You know, I don't care. <laughs> just something you can do. Um, now, with regard to your papers, all right, many of you have been in contact with me. Um, hammer it out. Once you have a question, you're in good shape. Do your best to collect everything together, pull it together. What I was trying to do this term was to enable you to read Plato. Because I think Plato is the key intellectual figure of ancient Greece. Aristotle is, I might be tempted to say, the first great platonic heretic. (laughs) And look, I think there's much to say for Aristotle. The guy is amazingly intelligent and amazingly comprehensive. But in my view, um, not only is Plato a greater artist than Homer, I'd be even tempted to say a greater artist than Shakespeare, but that's just me. Um, He's also a greater philosopher than anybody else prior to Aristotle. In other words, you read what their philosophy is like, they can't touch Plato. And in addition, I think he's one of the creators of one of the great world religions, which is what I think Platonism is. I think Platonism is something like uh, monotheism for intellectuals. That's what you sort of think yourself to it. Uh, you don't have to have one of those tole lege experiences where God reveals himself. Instead, you're going to climb the ladder of beauty. You're going to have a little chat with God once you get up there. All right. But the argument that I'm making in my history of the world is that uh, Platonism is one of the great world religions and deserves to be uh, connected to things like Hinduism or Confucianism or Christianity. It's a belief system which emphasizes the transcendental and is monotheistic, but the the god of this religion is not a person, doesn't have personality, doesn't have feelings, doesn't love you. Form of the good is completely indifferent to the world. It sits there, sending in all the goodness and all the intelligibility. It's like the sun, if that helps. But if you think about it, that helps not at all. So um, what you find out is that this form of the good is this really great thing. It's so good that it's the goodest thing there is. And not only is it the goodest thing there is, but it eternally is what it is and not anything else. And also, no one has ever seen it. Um, it sounds to me like um, what we're getting here is an attempt to worship reason or something very much like that. And uh, yeah, I think this is a religion. In other words, if you try and hold on to this just as a system of philosophy, well, the answers are almost completely wrong. Right, or at least that's my best understanding. On the other hand, the questions are permanently important. 
And what it does is offer us an alternative to the, uh, how can I put it, the pre-intellectual, pre-philosophical religion of Homer. Homeric religion comes from science 1.0. Platonic religion is actually a response to science 2.0. They say, look, you need a religion to have a politics, to have a government, to have the world make sense. Plato's going to supply, supply us with that in the form of myths. Now, of course, his, his, his views actually change over time. By the time he gets to the end of his life, the last, uh, last dialogue he writes is called The Laws. And The Laws has completely abandoned the theory of forms and completely abandoned the idea of the philosopher king. The reason why is that Plato thinks that the criticism that's been leveled at the theory of forms, it's called the third man argument, it comes from the Parmenides. He thinks it's dispositive, just look, it was wrong. And that takes a truly astonishing lust for truth. In other words, he's created arguably the greatest intellectual achievement of the ancient world. And once he became convinced that it was wrong, he turned his back on it and gave it up. It's like Aquinas with his uh, mystical experience turned his back on the Sunday. And like Wittgenstein decided later in his life, well, my first book was completely wrong, but you guys don't understand that. <laughs> All right. The greatest philosophers only want the truth. And the desire for that exceeds any lust in the sexual sense. All right. Like we said, like I said in the dialogues, um, dialogue with Socrates is soul sex. And it is the most powerful of things that can connect souls. Right. I mean, nobody is more seductive than Socrates, and no one is more chaste. But if Socrates has been messing with your brain, if you keep on going back to that, um, he's in charge. You realize what uh, Alcibiades says at the end of, uh, of the symposium. It's like a, a snake that once it bites you, it does whatever it wants with you because once you're bitten, you're stuck. And it takes over your life and um, does stuff to your brain. It did it to me, it's done it to him, and it's done it to a couple of you as well. I've been talking to you, like, no, because you've been stopping up in my office. You're all worried about your questions, but all of you um, are thinking in a way that suggests that these books have changed the way you think. Right. It's very clear in the way you talk and think. Now, we'll see what comes out in the essay, but um, <laughs> these books, if you read them right, will change your life. And, uh, yeah, that's the, why I think this is the most important thing that gets taught at universities. I mean, it's nice to learn how to earn a living, but it's also like, nice to learn what life itself is, what the human condition is. So here's the deal. Write your papers, hand them in next week. Uh, there's a due date on your syllabus. I would recommend that due date. Um, if for some reason that will not work, then you can send me an email telling me when you will have it in, but it can't be too late because I will not be able to grade you then, and that will not be good. All right, so I want you to write a paper. Uh, if you've got a topic, go to work on it. If you haven't, hammer away, and if you need some help, shoot me an email. I'll see what I can do for you. All right. But next term, we're doing the Romans and the Christians. All right? And uh, some of that I will photocopy and somehow get you a copy. Others of it, 
I will give you a link so you can get to it. But I didn't want you to have to buy all these things. So often I'm just using a small portion of the given book. All right. Questions about this? Yeah. So our first reading over break is going to be something you're going to email us. Oh, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no chance of forgetting that. Yeah. And the patrons have to incorporate all the books. I would like them to, although if it doesn't, it doesn't. You know. I mean, um, Uh, use phrenesis. <laughs> I think you know what I mean now. Go use phrenesis. Yeah. Do you get the email No, I, I like hard copies. I do, I do not like electronic anything. Or, I mean, I'm not even whatever that thing is, blackboard or whatever they call it. I'm not even on that. I, I, don't, I don't participate with this. I have no interest in this. Oh, look, I've been teaching for 35 years. If I needed a computer to do it, I would know that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I put stuff on blackboards. I don't use PowerPoint. All right, I mean, it's just, do you see what that does to thought? Have you ever looked at PowerPoint? No, 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 no. That's going to be bad for the way you think. You're going to be thinking in 140 character bursts. This is what people do nowadays. The president makes announcements on 140 characters. <laughs> that being said, right, the world's a mess, but um, intellectual life just keeps on humming along. Um, I will see, hopefully, many of you in the spring, but I want a paper from you in roughly a week. All right, and uh, if you have some elaborate, I mean, explanation for why you don't have it, please just fast forward to that. Just tell me when you're going to have it. I, I pretty much don't want to hear about what happened to your grandma. <laughs> All right. Whether it happened or not, whether the dog ate your homework, whether the printer doesn't work, I don't care. Remember early in the term, the first day I said, well, I, there's a whole bunch of things I don't care about. <laughs> this, this, the things I don't care about include um, the reasons why you're not having this in on time. All right. I told you the first day when you had to have it in, and now you're going to say, oh, snuck up on me. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know the score, you're adults, go write me a paper, and show me that you know how to think. In other words, there's lots of ways to get an A here. You don't have to think what I think. Remember, I'll be very suspicious if you do think everything I think. <laughs> I don't even know what I think. I don't a bunch of what I think. What can I say? All right? So, um, there you are, drift on a sea of thought. All right, do your best, and I will talk to you at a later date. Lecture 9, The New Proprietaries, The Middle Colonies. I'd like to talk about the Middle Colonies, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, and to see if we can't find some underlying similarities within these uh, heterogeneous communities. To a great extent, the Middle Colonies are defined by what they are not, as opposed to what they are. 
They are not as reliant upon slavery as the southern colonies, the Chesapeake. And in addition, they're probably uh, more urban than the southern colonies. On the other hand, unlike New England, the middle colonies are less nucleated, less organized around uh, uh, churches and individual towns. And in addition, there's much more religious heterogeneity uh, in the middle colonies than we find in New England. So to a great extent, the middle colonies are a geographic expression, and it's not easy for historians. And as a matter of fact, it has been a very vexing problem for historians to find some central core of the middle colonies, which allows us to designate them as a region for reasons that are not merely geographical. Um, at first, uh, at first glance, this seems a particularly difficult problem because the origins of the colonies are quite various. And not only are they quite various in their origins, but they're various in the way in which they develop and in which they expand. Uh, New York and Pennsylvania are the two most important of the middle colonies. Uh, uh, Delaware and New Jersey are rather secondary. And if we look at New York and Pennsylvania in particular, we will find a great deal of dissimilarity between the two. Now, in the case of New York, it's first settled by Europeans in 1624, and the Dutch make the initial landing there. They find that the Hudson River is a likely vehicle for trade, and in addition to that, it seems that they can build defensible outposts on the islands at the mouth of the Hudson River, and this results in the founding of New Amsterdam. Now, New Amsterdam is a very tiny settlement. There are, there are not a tremendous amount of people there. It's primarily a trading outpost. The Dutch didn't have a tremendous volume of, of settlers moving across the Atlantic Ocean. Their first concern was to establish commercial outposts, which is why they go up the Hudson River and eventually found not just New Amsterdam, but also the city that will become Albany, New York. Now, although the Dutch settled in Manhattan, in fact, they only settled a tiny fraction of it, which gives you some idea of the smallness of their outpost. Those of you who have ever been to Wall Street or who perhaps work on Wall Street, well, Wall Street used to have a big wall on it, which is how it got the name. And the wall was intended to keep Indian raiders out. And if you stop and think about what a tiny fraction of Manhattan is south of Wall Street, the Battery and a few other large buildings now, you realize the Dutch outpost was very, very small. And one of the reasons why the lower part of Manhattan um, has so many unusual twists and turns in its streets is due to the fact that Dutch cow paths were the original uh, <laughs> grid for lower Manhattan. It's quite clear if you go back and look at the evidence in terms of architecture or geography um, how small and tenuous the Dutch settlement was. Now, in addition to trying to set up commercial outposts, particularly for the beaver trade with the Indians, um, the Dutch tried to establish very large land grants across the, uh, the valley of the Hudson River. And these were called patroon ships. And this was an attempt by the Dutch to do something analogous to what the English were trying to do, to replicate, replicate in the New World a sort of quasi-feudal social structure. In other words, large land grants would be made to specific individuals who were given the land on the assumption that they could bring over a given number of colonists. The idea being that they would improve the land, that the landowners, the patroons, would be able to extract a surplus from them, and that the Dutch would get a, a colony which was ready-made at a minimum amount of expense. So one of the things that should be noted in the initial Dutch settlement of the, not just New York, but the whole Hudson River Valley, is the fact that very large land grants will be made, and this will have an important influence on the further development of the colony later on. Now, the Dutch 
colony at New Amsterdam was short-lived. Um, there were a series of trade wars between the Dutch and English because trade and commerce is the lifeblood of political life. Um, in, between 1661 and 1664, uh, the English conquered the Dutch, took over the colony, and, of course, they fought back and forth for a number of years. The Dutch reoccupied the colony in 1673 to 74, and then it was finally surrendered to a Dutch, uh, or rather to an English uh, official, Sir Edmund Andros, in 1674. It remained English thereafter. So it wasn't until 1674 that it became permanently English, and in particular, it became a proprietary colony. The Duke of York lent his name to New York. That's why it was changed from New Amsterdam to New York. And because it was a proprietary colony, it was founded around the idea of making money. The business of proprietary colonies was to enrich the proprietors and to create an established society which would generate future income streams. So the it, to a particular extent, and uh, with, with a, a very definite force, the proprietary colonies, both New York and Pennsylvania, are concerned with the turning of a profit. They are going to be largely commercial colonies. Now, in the furtherance of this, these commercial ideals, of these commercial intents, uh, the New York legislature put together a Charter of Liberties in, 1673, uh, in, in 1683, and this would allow for things like uh, equality before the law, and it would allow for things like a trial by jury. It was essentially a libertarian document. It was annulled and not accepted by the English authorities in 1685, but the idea was that these commercial men were interested in, maintain, in creating a political and governmental organization which will further their property interests, further their commercial interests, and establish things like equality before the law and the, uh, the sanctity of contract and things like that. So they were looking for a great deal of autonomy, but at the same time a great deal of security. They wanted a minimum amount of outside interference, and they wanted a certainty that they would be able to keep their property. Now, let's contrast that with the origins of New York with the origins of uh, Pennsylvania. It's worth considering that Pennsylvania had relatively few land grants that were large. Small household farms, 40 acres, 60 acres, 100 acres, were much more common in Pennsylvania. Um, in 1680, a grant was made to Sir William Penn, who was the father of the, uh, the uh, of the William Penn that, uh, that came to the, uh, Pennsylvania. He established a frame of government in 1682, which was rather like and certainly influenced the Charter of Liberties that we found in New York in 1683. And what Penn wanted to do was particularly to establish religious liberty. Penn was a Quaker, and Quakers were persecuted in England at the time. They were not an, a respectable brand of Protestantism at the time. And for that reason, Penn was hoping to create in Pennsylvania an area where which would be free of religious uh, inquisition, fr uh, free of religious bigotry, which would allow for, at least for all Protestants, to live together in harmony. So he emphasized the idea of freedom of religion and freedom of conscience in his uh, frame of government, and it was revised over the years, but the idea of religious toleration was very important in the history of Pennsylvania, and for that reason it attracted not just Quakers, but Huguenots, and Anglicans, of course, and in addition, Baptists and Lutherans, a whole collection of various Protestant sects settled in small family farms in Pennsylvania. In that respect, it was quite different from the pattern of settlement that we saw under the Dutch and later under the English, which granted very large tracts of land in the development of New York. Now, 
By 1701, a charter of liberties had been written for Pennsylvania, which included many of the great uh, liberties that became celebrated when America became its own independent country. Things like freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of religion were all built into the Charter of Assemblies, and this maintained itself as the Constitution of Pennsylvania right down to the Revolution. So from 1701, the hand of, of Penn was seen in the establishment of certain kinds of civil liberties, and this tradition was very important in developing the expectation of civil liberties that was characteristic of the American Revolution. Now, in addition to this tradition of civil liberties, particularly this idea of freedom of religion, Penn was an international thinker, and that was very, very important. In other words, Penn was a very broad-minded individual. He had traveled considerably in Europe and knew that there was a great deal of religious persecution going on in Western Europe, and that this made possible an increasing population for Pennsylvania if he could persuade Germans or the, the Dutch or the Swedes or even the French Huguenots to come and settle in Pennsylvania. And this did turn out to be a great attraction. The idea of religious liberty brought many different nationalities and many different Protestant sects to Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania from the very outset was intentionally international and intentionally um, uh, multi-sectarian. The, the result was religious toleration created the possibility of these multicultural communities, but in addition to that, it helped these multicultural communities flourish because people were inclined to come to a place where they wouldn't be persecuted. This was the exception rather than the rule in 1700, and that's one of the reasons why Pennsylvania thrived to the extent that it did. Now, New Jersey, to a great extent, was a secondary colony. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, perhaps the most important and influential man of the, uh, of the uh, middle colonies, once said that New Jersey is like a keg tapped at both ends because northern New Jersey was the market was a market and a, and a kind of back country to New York City. Southern New Jersey had a powerful Quaker influence, was very closely associated with Philadelphia. So for that reason, uh, cities developed, and this, uh, the urban commercial life was very important in the middle colonies. Big cities developed in New York at the mouth of the Hudson and also in Philadelphia. And New Jersey turns out to be a split market, which helps the development of urban commercial life in both New York and Philadelphia. Uh, and to a great extent, New York and New Jersey were identified in political life. It wasn't until 1738 that a separate government governor was appointed for New Jersey. Prior to 1738, the governor of New Jersey and the governor of New York were always the same person. So it turns out that it's not until fairly late in the colonial period that New Jersey begins to get its own separate identity. Uh, the same sort of problem emerges with Delaware. Delaware doesn't pull out, doesn't, uh, isn't eliminated from the uh, land holding of Pennsylvania until the early 18th century. And although the, the assembly in Delaware begins to meet in 1704, Pennsylvania and Delaware had the same governor right down to the revolution. So the two key, st uh, the, the two key states in the middle colonies are Pennsylvania and New York. And to a great extent, this is a function of the fact that they had commercial urban life, which allowed them a great deal of political influence in, in the hinterland. So if you look at Pennsylvania and New York, you are looking at the most important elements in the middle colonies. Now, it's important to think about the process by which people would go about settling the middle colonies. And for the most part, rivers are unusually important here. Be because rivers gave an easy access 
to the back country and easy access both to the Indian trade and to unpatented, unclaimed land, they were very attractive to the new settlers. And if you stop and think about it, those of you that have driven a Route 95 or those of you who have driven, say, the New York State Thruway or the Pennsylvania Turnpike know full well how hard it would be to get anywhere if you didn't have highways. Now imagine the first colonists coming to New York State or coming to New Jersey or coming to Pennsylvania. How are they going to get away from the coast? Well, they, it would certainly be virtually impossible or certainly very, very difficult to hack your way through the forest. The best thing to do is to take the water route and then get off at some convenient spot and settle there. You will find that the patterns of settlement in the middle colonies follow the contours of the rivers. And, of course, the most important example of that is the Hudson River in New York. Uh, they've, uh, there was a thriving trade in beaver skins from the earliest Dutch days in New York, and that's the reason why people used to use the Hudson River as the main commercial artery up and down New York State. That's why Albany becomes an important trading post and eventually the capital of New York State, and that's also why most of the big land grants are made on the banks of the Hudson River. Things like Livingston Manor, all right, Cortland Manor, Rensselaerswick. All of these go back to the early colonial period in New York when giant manors were being laid out, huge tracts of land. In addition to the Hudson River, the Delaware River was very important. Uh, the Delaware River was com was a, uh, had a combined ethnicity of Swedish Lutherans that had come in very early. They had tried to establish a new Sweden about the same time that the Dutch were establishing New Amsterdam, and they met pretty much the same fate because the English came in and overwhelmed both New Sweden and New Amsterdam. But the Swedes stayed there. If you drive down Route 95, you will see at the bottom of Pennsylvania, Swedesboro, and obviously that name goes back quite considerably in the history of Pennsylvania. So in the Delaware River, you find Quakers, because they are so important in the settling of the middle colonies, and also Swedish Lutherans. Um, in the Susquehanna River, that is largely settled by Germans. German Lutherans, German Mennonites, and Moravians settle up and down the Hudson River. And you may mistakenly believe that simply because they spoke German, that they were quite a cohesive group. In fact, for the most part, these were small, self-contained communities, and when language doesn't serve as a barrier between people, often religion does. So you will find that Lutherans of various descriptions, uh, speaking Swedish or German, will form separate communities, although, and also people speaking the same language, German or Dutch, will form separate communities based, sometimes based upon religion. So what we find in the middle colonies is, is a heterogeneous grouping of people that to a great extent form separate communities. This is both a consequence of religious toleration and it's also a, a kind of help to religious toleration because nothing else would really be possible. There were too few Anglicans and certainly too few Congregationalists to, establish, to create an established church which could develop without tremendous popular opposition. So what we'll find in the middle colonies is a great deal of heterogeneity. Heterogeneity of religion, heterogeneity of, of language, and also heterogeneity of nationality. In addition to this heterogeneous mix of nationalities and religions, we'll also find quite a heterogeneous economy. For the most part, there was not one staple crop, crop in the middle colonies. The beaver pelt trade and the deerskin trade were important for New York and Pennsylvania, um, but that had a limited amount of possibility because as the deer and as the beaver were gradually eliminated, it became harder and harder to find the source of that trade, and also the Indians are gradually being pushed back. For that reason, they went to a combination of wheat and livestock. 
Wheat was the main cereal grain of the middle colonies. They exported a great deal, but the problem was that wheat was not an especially profitable crop. You could turn a small profit on it, but it wasn't nearly so profitable, for example, as rice was in South Carolina. What that meant is that because you couldn't grow a very profitable crop like rice in the middle colonies, people stuck to wheat and their returns were modest. And that means that a small family farmer could produce sufficient for himself and his family, and by selling off some of the surplus, he could gain uh, access to markets and gain a little bit of money to pay his taxes and to buy some consumer goods. But there was rarely a tremendous accumulation of wealth in the middle colonies. You could make a pretty good subsistence as a family farmer, but you were not likely to become rich. To become rich, you had to be living in one of the plantation zones, and you had to get control of labor. What we had is in a mixed agricultural economy is production for market, and often a, a, man, a man and a wife and a family come settle down, clear the land, start growing a few crops to subsist on and to sell to the market to, meet, to make ends meet, and then sell off the cleared land at a profit and then move further west. That process and that pattern is seen in, throughout the history of, the, of, the, of colonial America, but it's particularly important in the colonial middle colonies. That's one way in which a, a small family farmer could accumulate wealth, by clearing the land, by getting roads put in towards his land, which make it more accessible, which increase its value, which allows him to sell and buy land further on the frontier. A larger piece of land, and again, the same process would be replicated. What's most important about the middle colonies is that they have cities and city life, and in particular, a merchant elite emerges in these cities, and this is where the real money is. In the history of the United States, you can never completely separate money and political influence. That's, I mean, understandable enough. The places in the middle colonies where we're going to find the greatest amount of wealth will be in these commercial elites that develop in the cities, and it's very important to note that these kinship elites are... Uh, or that, these kin that these mercantile elites are based upon the idea of kinship. You see, it's very hard to know who you can trust if you are trading with the Sugar Islands or if you are trading with Western Europe. If you want to make sure that you're getting a proper accounting of your goods when they're shipped to England, you'd best have some member of your family there to meet the ship when it comes in. In other words, family ties are one of the things that expedite the process of developing large mercantile ties. It's much harder when people are not bound by relations of blood because Communication and transportation are very difficult. A reckoning of accounts, time is money. A reckoning of accounts can be quite uh, a long and painstaking operation, and you don't know who to trust so far away. If someone says that your goods were damaged in transit, unless it's your brother or your son or your father, how do you know whether to trust them or not? If someone signs on and swears an affidavit, how do you know he's not taking money under the table? Corruption is too easy, given the relatively primitive communication and transportation system. That's why kinship networks are very important to the development of these commercial elites. Now, in addition to these kinship ne networks that we find in both Philadelphia and New York City, we're also going to find that the social structure will be very good for small family farmers. Um, people that come over from England or from other parts of Western Europe, from France or from Germany, 
often are desperately poor. Remember that, for the most part, the people that come to the United States were losers back at home. Very rarely does the king of any country decide to go and start a farm in Pennsylvania. If you are doing great back in Western Europe, there's no reason for you to want to leave. In other words, America is the kind of cast-off, to a great extent, of Western Europe at this time. What that means is that the people coming to America, assuming that they're not enslaved, are coming because they are desperately poor and want to try a fresh start. Because of their poverty, often they had to come over as indentured servants. Now, an indentured servant would come over and would not be able to pay for his passage, which is quite expensive at the time and also quite dangerous come over on shipboard, and the captain would sell him as part of the cargo, would sell him for a limited amount of time, usually seven years, and he would, uh, the indentured servant would, would work for someone in the colony for seven years, and the person who bought the indenture would pay the captain a given price, and that would compensate the captain for the cost of moving the indentured servant over to the new world. Now, that process was quite common. It was probably more common in the 17th century than in the 18th century. And in the 18th century, a new form of indenture develops, which is very important for the peopling of the middle colonies because it, is one of the, because it was one of the most popular ways of having people come to the middle colonies. Remember that very few people, particularly poor whites who are going to work with their hands, very few of them want to go to the south because they don't want to compete with slave labor. So, understandably enough. On the other hand, very few of them, unless they're Congregationalists, I mean, want to go to New England because of the fact that New England has that religious homogeneity, doesn't allow for very much in the way of religious freedom. So if people want religious freedom and if they want a chance to increase, the, uh, to better their lot economically, the middle colonies was the place to go. And a new form of indenture comes in. It's called redemption. And the people who engage in this are called redemptioners. And for that reason, uh, the middle colonies get a, a name as being the best poor man's country. One of the great books on uh, the history of colonial Pennsylvania is called The Best Poor Man's Country. And this book shows the ways in which a poor individual could come to Pennsylvania and do tolerably well. Probably wouldn't become the analog of a millionaire, but could have a fairly comfortable life, far more comfortable than they would have had at home. Now, redemption is different from an indenture in the following way. If you have a little bit of money, and particularly if a family has been working for some time, some months, trying to get up the cost of passage, and a ship is leaving, what you would do is pay part of the passage and become a redemptioner rather than an indentured servant. So if it costs 10 pounds to cross the Atlantic, you could put up 3 pounds or 5 pounds and say, for the balance that is owed to the ship captain, I, and more usually, I and my family will become redemptioners. So if a man and wife and several children were to cross, they still had a balance left on the cost of their, cost of their passage, they would say, I will redeem that cost when I get to Philadelphia or when I get to New York. What they would do is something like this. Instead of being sold, instead of being a kind of a chattel, um, being sold by the ship captain, they would be allowed to go ashore and they would be given either a week or a month, some small period of time in which to strike the best bargain that they could. Now, since they weren't obligated to do the full seven years as an indentured servant would, often redemptioners would come to the New World and would only be obligated, could get, they could get a good deal. Remember that the control of labor is key throughout colonial America, and the price of labor is much higher in colonial America than it is back in Western Europe. So you can sell your skills and the skills of your family and children 
at a relatively high price, and you will have only a small amount of time to redeem. So often a redemptioner would come to Philadelphia and sell the, his services and the services of his family for one year, 18 months, two years. And for that reason, it was possible to get a very quick start in life. You come in, your, uh, the balance of your passage is paid to the captain for, uh, as soon as you sign your, your redemption certificate, and then you work for somebody for a year. If you do that, you can come in, and then once you finish your year, go back, settle on attractive land, and become a small subsistence farmer. Not only will you make subsistence, you'll be able to feed your family, but you will, in addition, be able to sell some for market, gradually accumulate wealth as your land is cleared, and then start the process of extending the frontier once again. So uh, the Middle Colonies got the name of being the best poor man's country, and that's probably, um, uh, there's a certain degree of truth in that. In addition to that, there was very little slavery, which is also quite important. Slavery was mostly confined to the Chesapeake and even, to a greater extent, to the lower south, South Carolina. And since slavery was rare and generally only found in the urban areas, there wasn't too much competition between free labor and slave labor that kept the wages high, which was always of great concern to people that would be working with their hands. Um, more than 90% of the people in the middle colonies were farmers. So although I'm emphasizing the importance of cities because that's where a great deal of the political intrigues go on and that's where we have a good bit of the commerce and the concentrated wealth, most people in the middle colonies were small family farmers. And uh, except in New York, which had a great deal of tenant farm or a great deal of large landholding and some degree of tenant farming, most of the farmers in the middle colonies owned their own land. And that, of course, was the great uh, uh, goal for many people coming to the, to, to the colonies. They wanted to own their own land. It was a land-hungry society. Now, I should emphasize the heterogeneity of the middle colonies, particularly both religious and, heter and, and ethnic. Um, we had New England Congregationalists who had been gradually extending the borders of New England to the point where uh, most of uh, eastern Long Island, uh, things like uh, Southampton and South Hold, are settled by Puritans or Congregationalists, rather, Yankees. Um, in addition to uh, New England Congregationalists who were in northern New York State and uh, also in Long Island and also in northern New Jersey, uh, we also have the Dutch Reformed. Remember that the Dutch had never been completely displaced, particularly from New York, so there's a considerable number of Dutch Reformed churches in the valley of the Hudson River. In addition to that, um, the there's quite a few Dutch in Delaware as well. Quakers had always been important in Pennsylvania and, south and the southern part of New Jersey. Uh, and there are Quakers also in Delaware as well. And Anglicans are to be found in every colony, but there were never any substantial number of them except in the cities. Uh, cities were the center of political control. Uh, Anglican, the Anglican church was the established English church. So most of the Anglicans to be found will be found in those commercial uh, centers. And uh, in addition to Anglicans, there are Presbyterians. We have Scotch-Irish eventually in the back country of all of the middle colonies. There's a sprinkling of Baptists, particularly in New York. And there are even a few Jews and Catholics, although there are very few of those. There are some Sephardic Jews from the Dutch times that remained in uh, Manhattan. But for the most part, there weren't very many Jews or Catholics. Toleration then meant toleration for Protestant denominations. To us, that may sound somewhat sectarian, but in fact, for the place and the time, it was actually a step forward in religious freedom. So for the most part, there was a considerable degree of religious toleration. 
But stop and think about it. What choice did they have? With the Dutch Reformed and the Baptists and the Anglicans and the Quakers, there was no way to effectively create a, 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 a state religion. It was very hard to avoid the need for religious tolerance. Now, once the Great uh, Awakening occurs um, and the status of ministers declines even further because many of them are attacked for being cold, many of them are attacked for being unreconstructed uh, and not, not being sufficiently enthusiastic, as the status of ministers declines, the possibility of creating a religiously homogeneous society becomes essentially a non-question. For that reason, this heterogeneity will lend itself to the development of, first of all, factional politics, but second of all, to a sort of tolerant conception of politics, which doesn't try and force things into one cultural mold, the way which we saw, say, the history of New England. Now... If it is true that Penn was on to something in establishing religious toleration, that he was a forward-looking man as well as being a humane man, it's worth looking into the kind of factions that do emerge between the proprietors and the people who are living in these colonies. Now, in every case, a proprietary colony has contradictory imperatives. The proprietors want to make money, and they want to make money now in their lifetime. The people that colonize the society don't want to ship money back to the proprietors. What they want is the, the capital to remain there so that it can be used to further develop what they understand to be a wilderness. So there's always a certain degree of tension between the colonists and the proprietors. And for that reason, factions inevitably emerge. And these factions will primarily be centered in the cities because that's the locus of political power. And because political power and these commercial elites organized around kinship, we'll find that the initial factions have a great deal to do with family infighting. Um, many of the great families of New York, for example, used to have all kinds of factional squabbles throughout their history, and they could only unite when they were trying to argue with the proprietors or when they, met, when they had some common enemy. But if you think about uh, names like Rensselaer and Schuyler and Delancey, if you know Delancey Street in uh, southern Manhattan, Livingston, Livingston Street in southern Manhattan, Clinton, Hunter, Morris, all these famous families used to jockey for political preferment and position, used to try and get choice land holdings, choice positions within the, within the colonial government, and they used to intermarry to a great extent. So for this reason, these commercial and political elites used to argue among themselves and also coalesce in one unified group when they had a common problem with the proprietors. A similar kind of pattern emerges in Pennsylvania. Uh, Logan and Lloyd and Keith um, formed pro- and anti-proprietary um, groups or factions, and the Quakers on the whole, because Penn was a co-religionist, almost always supported the proprietors. For that reason, there was relatively little anti-proprietary um, conflict in Pennsylvania. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. Now, uh, what we find in the, the development of these factions is that there's a, a kind of breaking point at the time of the Glorious Revolution, 1789 or so, and that kind of is a turning of the corner for these proprietary colonies. For a while, due to the political instability in England, what we'll find is that, for example, New York has its proprietary, uh, proprietary status pulled away and is put under the dominion of, uh, of New England under Andros, which is, it begins, becomes part of a super colony with, uh, with New England. New York gets shunted in that direction. And one of the results of the, uh, of the glorious revolution in, uh, in, 
New York is that there was a rebellion. Uh, a man named Jacob Leisler tried to make sure that Protestantism, particularly the, the reign of William and Mary, would be defended because he wasn't sure about Andros, he wasn't sure about the possibility of a connection with the Catholic kings of England. So what he did was chase out the royal governor, and one of the results of that was that when royal government was reestablished, Leisler was hanged, and many of the earlier factions began to change in their direction, uh, a process of Anglicization, of making New, uh, New York a more English colony, of having a greater degree of English influence, began and continued on to the period of the, of the American Revolution. Um, uh, at the time of the uh, Glorious Revolution, Penn was replaced by a royal governor, but he re returned, uh, became proprietor again of Pennsylvania in, 1790, in 1694 and came in 1699 to become a resident governor, and that's very, very important. For the most part, proprietors did not live in the colonies that they owned. They would try and milk it from England. Penn was a resident proprietor. That meant there was considerably less corruption, and you could actually get to the boss. So it had the effect of smoothing all, all over at least some of the factional difficulties. Now, one of the most important and perhaps a signal events in the history of the Middle Colonies was the trial of John Peter Zenger. Now, those of you who know the, about the Zenger trial, it's one of the landmark cases in, of freedom of the press in the uh, American tradition. And what happened? It was in 1734 and 5. And what happened is something like this. Zenger was part of one of these factions within New York City politics, and he criticized Governor Crosby, or Cosby, because of some arbitrary ruling that he had made. Now, at this time, merely to publish a, uh, a criticism of the government was seditious. You could be put in jail for it, and it was, a, I mean, a high offense. And at this time, merely the fact that the criticism that was published was true had not been established as a defense. In other words, you weren't allowed to publish the sort of scathing critique of the governor that Singer did publish, even if it were true. This is one of the landmark cases in of freedom of the press. What happened is that the governor had him prosecuted for seditious libel, and he had him kept in jail, incommunicado, for ten months. And when he was allowed to, uh, to stand trial, Andrew Hamilton... Uh, a famous Philadelphia lawyer came up, argued the case, and won on the basis of the, of the argument that the criticism that had been published was true. Now, much of the data, uh, much of the evidence showing that his criticism was true had been left out, had been ruled inadmissible. But the trial, because the, the jurors were swayed by it, the jury went with John Peter Zenger and established one of the landmark freedom of, of the press cases in the history of the United States. Now, the United States, of course, doesn't exist yet, but if you think of the Constitution, not in the American sense, but in the British sense of an established series of traditions, at the point of the John Peter Zenger case, freedom of the press becomes part of the American Constitution in that British sense, in the sense of an established body of traditions. And that's why this is such an important case. It also suggests that factional infighting had become so nasty and so bitter that the government that was standing would do anything to squelch it. When that was taken away, it meant that factional infighting became that much more difficult and became that much more nasty. And the elaboration of these factions will generate the first 
gropings towards a political party system. And this is in some ways what the most important thing about um, the pre-revolutionary generation is. Established splits, which are based upon factions of various kinds. There's an upcountry, for example, and a low country faction. There's a coastal faction and there's an interior faction. Think of the history of, uh, uh, of upstate and downstate New York. That, faction, that factionalization exists today. There's a, uh, a court and a country party. There are the people surrounding the uh, governor and there are those who are in opposition to the governor. There are factions based upon family, upon religion, upon uh, language. There are a tremendous number of factional uh, groups within the, uh, the middle colonies. What happens is that they make the best of a bad situation, particularly at the time of the Zenger trial. People start publishing pamphlets and letters to the effect of, say, well, look, parties may not be so bad. Perhaps we can live with these factions if they are not too dangerous, if they will regulate themselves, police themselves, if they will restrict themselves to publishing that which is true, then they may actually form a salutary part of the government. And this is a political breakthrough in many respects. Remember that in the whole history of Western political thought, faction and party was always thought of as being an evil. If you go back and look at the Federalist Papers, uh, trying to, you know, stumping for the ratification of the Constitution, they said we will prevent faction and party from developing. They hadn't completely gotten to the point where they were willing to accept the legitimacy of faction and party. It's not going to be until Edmund Burke, quite late, is going to uh, develop a theory which will say, look, if you're going to have representative government, you have to allow for difference of opinion. And if you're going to have difference of opinion and difference of interest, then you have to allow for the idea of a loyal opposition. Well, long before Edmund Burke thought up the idea of a loyal opposition, in theory, in practice, the middle colonies had developed some such system. You have to allow for the certain degree of dissent. You have to allow for established factionalization within a democratically or at least a representatively organized society. And if that's going to be the case, then we are moving towards a new political order. I'd be tempted to say that that's the main political contribution that we're going to see in the middle colonies. And the pre-revolutionary generation is going to take these ideas and make them part and parcel of the ideas for which the American Revolution will be fought. Now, uh, in 1750, the middle colonies had established elites and they were in a thriving condition. Um, be, uh, at 1750, between 1700 and 1750, the population in the middle colonies had doubled every 25 years, and their economies had just gone off the charts. Um, the uh, amount of imports in New York between 1730 and, and 1740 uh, was, uh, was one-third the amount of imports to New York between 1760 and 1770. Same sort of thing happened in Pennsylvania. We saw a five-fold increase in imports in just 30 years. Somebody was making a lot of money. And where you find money, you find political power. So these factions, which are organized around various internal local problems, are now developing a certain degree of clout. There's a certain degree of intermarriage between leading families. So we are seeing a homegrown colonial elite develop. And the generation between, say, 1720 and 1770, this homegrown colonial elite will be a leading element in the development of a, a legitimate revolutionary group that wants to separate away. When we have uh, 
an elite which is conscious of its own power and which is well established in the middle colonies, they will be open to the possibility of breaking away. They will see as much to gain as there is, at least, at least as much to gain as there is to lose. So this will be important in making possible the people that will develop the American Revolution in the middle colonies. Um, these self-conscious colonial elites um, are family-oriented, they're largely commercial, and you can see actually in the development of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, it starts as an academy in 1751, and the development of Columbia University, which starts uh, in 1754. This is exactly the time when these homegrown, well-established elites have said, now let us have our own educational system. That's another way of establishing a sort of cultural separation from the mother country. So the development of, of, system of institutions of higher education in Philadelphia and New York in the 1750s in some ways signalizes the development of the, and the, uh, the power of these homegrown elites. But it's not just a question of elites. As the historian Gary Nash has pointed out, in the cities, particularly in New York and, and Philadelphia, urban artisans, poor people, people that work with their hands, also become politically influential. The development of factional politics is a double-edged sword. That particularly, it's exacerbated by the growth of pamphlets and newspapers. Once the Zenger trial establishes the fact that you cannot be jailed for seditious libel if what you're writing is true, well, people take certain liberties with the truth, and a whole group of newspapers, some of them scandalous and scurrilous, do in fact develop, and this helps mobilize the urban artisans. This helps helps get the lower orders of society interested in politics as well. So there are various kinds of riots, usually about particular specific local issues, but these mob actions and riots, which are an established tradition before 1770, will become very important in, as we move towards the American Revolution. So both the activation or the political activity of of artisans and the political activity of local commercial and familiar, familial elites suggests that the middle colonies by 1750 or 1770 have developed a certain degree of autonomy. This autonomy is not recognized in law, but it will be after the revolution, but it is a, a mature society by 1750. It is mature in its heterogeneity. It is mature because it has developed a political theory which is adequate to the unusually heterogeneous conditions that they faced, and that, may I suggest, is what makes the middle colonies in some ways a cultural clump as unified as New England or the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake has slavery as a unifying principle, and certainly South Carolina does. New England has religion as a unifying principle and has the idea of the Puritan village or the, the, the village surrounding the church as a u unifying principle. The middle colonies weren't nucleated to that extent and they didn't have that much slavery. But what they did have was heterogeneity. And strangely enough, the political consequences of this heterogeneity are a political culture which in fact unifies the middle colonies. They are unified by their diversity. I know that sounds like a strange and rather contradictory thought, but in fact there's a considerable degree of tolerance. There's a considerable degree of factional infighting, but it's not taken to the point of civil war, which is what the, which is what the criticism of factional infighting had always been, that it leads to civil war. In fact, they managed to create the first loyal opposition in America. And the idea of a loyal opposition is an enormously sophisticated thought. It takes a great deal of political maneuvering and political thought and political work to make a loyal opposition possible. It is this loyal opposition and the idea that faction is not necessarily an evil thing that makes 
the middle colonies an important contributor to the ideology of the American Revolution and to the ideology of the United States. They allow for freedom of dissent so long as it's kept within regulated bounds. They are making a virtue of necessity, but in so doing, what they did was create a regional culture that is based not just on geography, but on ethnic and, uh, ethnic and political necessity. To get, uh, and I'll close with this idea. If I had to choose one person who's the most important epitome of the middle colonies, I would have to choose Benjamin Franklin. Because he, he's, well, he's a, a famous scientist, a famous politician, he's an important inventor, he's a self-made man. In many respects, Benjamin Franklin is the epitome of the middle colonies. He, he's born in Boston, and interestingly enough, he comes early enough, he's 17 years old, he's apprentice to a printer in Philadelphia. He eventually buys the print shop that he worked in, starts his own newspaper, newspapers being very important in mobilizing political opinion. That makes him an opinion maker. That makes him a highly respected, well-known man. He can found a political career on that. So to a great extent, Benjamin Franklin, and you should re incidentally read his autobiography. When you're studying the history of colonial America, nothing is more worthwhile or useful than to read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. While it is a bit self-congratulatory, it tells you a great deal about the history history of colonial America and the mentalité of the middle colonies in particular. And I would, I would close with this. It's worth noting that in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, when he's coming south, leaving Boston, because he's born there in 1706, he's coming south looking for a place to settle. And he bypasses New York, decides not to settle there permanently, and goes down to Philadelphia. And the reason why is this. The middle colonies had a reputation for being the best poor man's country, but in fact, it was regional within the middle colonies. The best poor man's country was really Pennsylvania. That's the place where a poor man could, make a, could get a good living and then rise if he were lucky and diligent. New York, because of its tradition of highly stratified society and, in addition, large land grants, which made it hard to accumulate land, meant that there were very, many fewer yeoman farmers there as a percentage of society. It was harder to rise in New York. The man that wanted to rise, that wanted to make something of himself, would go to Pennsylvania. And the best example of such a man is Benjamin Franklin.